does God exist? A lot of what we do on Spiritually Incorrect just presupposes he does. It's the center of the Christian faith, in fact. But can we actually know whether or not it's true? For thousands of years, thinkers have debated this point with varied success. So on today's episode, Jonathan and I rank four of the most common arguments for God's existence and one against it. If you're new to the subject of apologetics, this is the episode for you. And if you really like this episode and want to know more, a completely unaired second debate episode on this topic just released on our Patreon. That's our thank you gift for those who've helped keep this podcast alive over the past year. And if you're not a Patreon member, for five bucks a month, you can get that episode plus hours of additional content from all our episodes. All right, let's get to the topic. Welcome to another episode of Spiritually Incorrect. On this episode, we have four arguments in God's favor, one against, and one very prolonged argument between Jonathan and I. I'm your host, Seth Hart. Join with me is Jonathan Lionheart. Howdy. John, it snowed a lot. Yes. Well, it's it's not so much that there's that much snow. There, there's a bit of snow outside. It's more that it's just very, very, very cold. So I was driving back, I was on a ski trip, and it was it was warmer on top of the mountain than it is outside my house today. Wow, you just bring the frigidity with yeah, you. Yeah, but that's the thing, it, it, it was cold, but it wasn't this cold, so I don't know where it came from, what smite from God we did. Oh, I see the transition there, God. Yeah, sure, yes. that was totally intentional. <laughs> what, well, what are we talking about? Today, today? we're going to go through the arguments for the existence of God and one argument against the existence of God. And just because it's such a popular thing right now, we're going to put make a tier list of them on how good we think those arguments are. Now, if you think that like the Christian faith or just belief in God in general is just a matter completely of faith, well, then wonderful. But there are arguments for the existence of God. There are things out there that people point to to say, hey, look, this seems to give us evidence to show with logic, reason, evidence, that sort of stuff, that God does in fact exist. He's left his fingerprints on the world. Gross. Did you say gross? <laughs> no. Yeah, you did. Maybe. That's the almighty God. Watch yourself, punk. You're borderline blasphemy. So I'm excited about this episode. We're gonna we're gonna fit, we're gonna solve it once and for all, people. We're gonna prove definitively whether God exists or not. All of the philosophers over thousands of years have merely been but a preparation for this conversation and this hour on this podcast. We're gonna solve it, everybody. Wonderful. You're welcome. You're welcome, humanity. So, what are we starting with, John? Which argument should we start with? Well, there's a bunch of different arguments for the existence of God, but let's start with the start with the cosmological argument, which looks at the origins of the universe and tries to say, God did it. Why don't you walk us through the, the argument? Well, now? there's many different versions of the cosmological argument. Cosmological arguments are just any arguments that say, somehow by looking at the cosmos, the origin of it, we can therefore discern that God is the, in a sense, font, origin, creator, whatever word you want to use, for the universe, for the cosmos. Okay. So one we're Go going to look at, I think specifically, is the Kalam cosmological argument, which is made famous by a guy called William Lane Craig. I'm sure many of our listeners will have heard of him. He kind of revitalized this argument, and it points to the fact that, well, if the universe had a beginning, it had to have, in a sense, a beginner, because things that have beginnings usually have causes. So if we, you know, apply that logic to the fact of the Big Bang, the fact that universe can't run on forever because of the second law of thermodynamics, a lot of things are appealed to here, then it seems to point in the direction that God was the creator of the universe. But Seth, why can't there just be another universe before this universe? 
Why can't it be an infinite series, an infinite regression of universes that have always existed? Well, my hypothetical interlocutor, speaking through the voice of John, the reason it couldn't be an infinite series of universes is because those universes appealing from one to the next to the next to the next just gets you into an infinite regress. And philosophers tend to frown upon infinite regresses because the concept of infinity really creates a lot of problems. So for instance, what's infinity minus infinity? You can get any answer you want from that. You can create all these sorts of paradoxes. So for instance, if John is half as fast as me, which he, that's about right, if John's about half as fast as me, if we had a race and the race went on for infinite amount of time, then we'd both have traveled the same distance, which doesn't make any sense. As time goes on, I would get further and further ahead. So eventually at point infinite, how all of a sudden have we run the same distance? Because I've run an infinite distance and you've run an infinite distance, even though I'm going half as much as yeah. you, thus paradox. And so infinity doesn't make sense. So the universe can't have existed for an infinite period of time on and on and on and on in the past. Yeah, these are highly simplified versions of these arguments. There's book length treatments of this, very academic and stuff. Seth, as your hypothetical interlocutor, why can the universe not have existed an infinite period of time in the past? But God doesn't have the same problem. I mean, if God is another cause, well, who caused God? Why, why doesn't that create the same infinite regression? Well, you got two questions there. Why is problem of infinite not with God? And normally you'd say that God either had a timeless state, is timeless, so you don't actually get an infinite time backward. Or you say that, well, God existed in time, but really the infinites are only about some sort of actions that are done. It's only whenever you start cutting and dividing time up that you get these sorts of problems into divisible points of action. This gets into really the, the weeds. But the, the idea is that theism can somehow avoid the problem of an infinite regress because of God's state. Because if you think about God, you can actually have states of being where God doesn't actually create an infinite regress, whether it's timeless or in time, blah, 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 blah. So everything within time needs a cause of its existence. And the universe is within time, so it needs a cause of its existence. But God is outside of time, looking down on the chessboard. And so does it need a cause because he never began to exist because he's outside of time? No, uh, so it's not that everything within time has a cause. It's everything that has a beginning has a cause. Well, obviously, if you have a beginning, you're in time. But if something has existed eternally, you can just grant that it doesn't have a cause. It might still need an explanation of its existence in some way. But for the sake of argument, we're saying whatever begins to exist has a cause. So we can keep explaining this argument forever, but just go look up the resources. William Lane Craig, that's a good starting point. But really, let's get to the point of just saying, John, how are we judging these arguments? Well, I guess we have to ask, do we think the argument is valid? Like, does it work? Is it a persuasive argument that's logical, that's thought through, that's consistent? And what other criteria would there be? Uh, yeah, I think one is, does it work? Two, is it convincing? Which sound like they should be okay. one and the same, but they're not. Okay, the first one is, are they logically consistent with themselves? Do the premises lead to the conclusion? That sort of thing. Well, not just are they valid, but are they sound? Like, does this logically follow and are the premises evidenced? Well, is do we have good reasons for believing the premises? So that's one thing, but you can have that and still people be like, yeah, I don't know. I might not have a response, but it's it seems like I'm being... A tricks being pulled on me. It doesn't seem that convincing. It doesn't evoke belief. So it might be logically airtight, philosophically a great argument. But when it actually comes to the point of apologetics, which, you know, you're actually supposed to convince people of this might not actually work. Hmm. I think when we get to the ontological argument, I think that's the epitome yeah. of one argument where you see the divide. It works, but nobody cares. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. like you just feel like someone's pulling a trick on you. So on the scale of great argument to the ontological argument, how do we put this on the scale of how good it is at convincing people. I think a lot of people are convinced by the cosmological argument. There seems to be a sort of intuitive sense of, oh, well, the universe began to exist, the Big Bang, so therefore someone must have made it go bang, set the firework on fire and made it pop. There's this, people seem to, I, I've talked to a number of people who've been convinced because of the cosmological argument, but I don't know how valid it is. I don't actually think it works as an argument. People might be persuaded by it, but I don't think it works. So on scale of persuasiveness, what would you give it? S tier being the highest, D tier being the lowest? I think it's close to an S tier. 
Is that, would you agree? So it goes S tier, A tier, B tier, C tier, D tier. For some reason, these tier lists, S is always on top. Otherwise, it's just your standard grading rubric. Um, would I put it S tier for convincing? No, I would put it maybe A tier. I can't, what's with the, the letters? Can't we do like a numbering system? Like one to 10? No, definitely not. We're doing, no? keeping the tier list. Okay. This precedes us, just as the cosmos does. It precedes us. What if we did it on a Chris on a Chris's tier, like from Chris Pratt to like Chris Pine, and you rank the Chris's? It seems like you put Chris Pratt at the bottom there. Yeah, I put Chris Pratt. Uh, at see, the bottom this there. won't work because mine's the inverse. I don't like Chris Pine. Okay, well, um, agree to to infinitely disagree. So yeah, name one good movie Chris Pine's in. The first Star Trek. Awful. Are you kidding me? Disgusting. The second Princess Bride. You're just, you're really stretching here. <laughs> you're really, this is tough. All right. All right. S tier, A tier, B tier. Okay. So you're, right, S, fine, whatever. you're S tier and I'm A tier as far as persuasive. Persuasiveness. Right. What about how well, good of an argument as philosophically it is? Philosophically, I'm not convinced by the cosmological argument at all. And I mean, I get into this in my first book, Monotheism, available on Amazon. Boo. Self-promotion. Self-promotion. Monotheism. Um, I get into this in my book, and basically I say that God doesn't have to be caused by something before God, because God's outside of time. I get that. But if God is outside of time, how can God begin to create the universe? How can a timeless entity begin to create time? Because as soon as you say begin, you've brought time back into the equation. And so in order to get around God needing a cause of God's existence, you needed to make God timeless. But in so doing, you made God impotent to begin to cause anything at all, because God can't begin to do anything. He's timeless. Yeah. So I've never been convinced by the cosmological. But at the same time, you then ultimately bring it back around to use it to argue for God's existence. So you just end up having a version of it. Well, it's a very different version of it, but I, I don't know if I would categorize it as a cosmological argument. I, I, I think, I don't think this is a big problem. I think the people like Swinburne, Paget have solved it. This is where John and I disagree. Go read Alan Paget's book if you're curious. I think when it comes to the science right now, it really is appealing to some of the best science we have. There are alternative models like chaotic inflation, which you can give or take it still on hypothesis stage. So it really, I think of the real philosophical work has to be done with whether or not past infinites can really happen. And I lean intuitively looking at all the arguments towards the, the idea that no, you can't have a past infinite. So no. I give it a B. I give it a B as far as how good of a philosophical argument it is. B for baller. I think it's a high B tier. High B. A B plus. A B plus. B plus. Grading system. There we go. A, A plus B, B, C, D. Well, whatever. you just say high B, high B tier, you know? So I, that's where okay. I'm at. Where are you at? I put it at a C. Really? You think it's an S tier convincing wise, but yeah, I think, and an, I think, a D tier for like logic and stuff? Yeah, I, I just think that as soon as you try to explain why God is a better explanation than any other, it just falls apart. I mean, I believe God created the universe, but I don't think the argument from co the cosmological argument gets you there. So overall, both in convincingness and philosophically, it's D for you. It's bottom of the barrel. Well, I said convincingness. I think it's higher. Okay, so put them together. So I'm saying mine's a, C, mine's a B tier for... I would say that I think the cosmological argument's probably an A or a B for persuasiveness. And I would say it's a C for its philosophical validity okay we went from s to a to a to b so can we just can we agree to put it like upper b tier sure okay there we go we got it we have to come to some sort of agreement right all right the system must be obeyed b tier but on the upper end of it okay, okay. what's next john well we have the teleological argument or you might know it as the design argument and the design argument comes in many different forms that all are basically along the lines of the universe as we see it around us is too complex, too intricate, too perfectly woven together, whether in the very laws of the universe or in the details of it. It looks like it must be the handiwork of some designer who knew what they were doing and intelligently designed it. Yeah, so you'll probably know this from like arguments from creationism, arguments from intelligent design, if you know about irreducible complexity. These are forms of teleological arguments. I have my own, 
that I'm developing that has nothing to do with design. So it, teleological arguments are bigger than design arguments, but I think we'll focus on design arguments because those are the big boys. I usually tend to think of it in two tiers. And Seth, this is your area. So tell me if I'm stupid. You're stupid. Oh, you meant about this. You meant about this. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, in general, yeah. I tend to think of it as there's biological design and there's cosmological design. Biological design is everything Seth just said. You know, you're looking at the cell and saying, this is very complex. You got mitochondria and all these other things. You're looking at different species and how complex they are. You're looking at things like the eye. Basically, you're looking at biology and saying, this is really complex. This couldn't have just happened on its own. But the other type of design arguments, more of a cosmological design argument, you're looking at the ratio of the basic forces of the universe. You're saying, wow, if gravity had been any more intense, the universe would have collapsed back in on itself. But if it had been any less intense, it would have spread out into this infinite void and nothing would have ever had enough gravity to come together and shape stars and planets and life. And so gravity is so precisely fine-tuned, so perfectly designed to bring about life, the parameters are very narrow uh, that could have allowed that. So clearly that must be designed. God must have designed that. And there's dozens of those types of perfect parameters in the nature of the cosmos that are so perfectly tuned. And if they hadn't been so precisely tuned, we wouldn't exist to talk about it. So clearly God must have done it. I kind of see those two types. There's the biological design and cosmological design. There's more though. Well, there's okay. more, there's, well, there's an astronomical design. It's called the privileged planet argument. And there's a book called The Privileged Planet that does that. There's books about chemical design now that are coming out. So Ross Hastings, one of our professors, I'm reading his book before publication that's that's arguing for that. There are tons of these books that talk about design at every level. But those are the two big ones. Yeah, those are the two big ones. And I would say, and Seth, you can contradict me on this, that the cosmological parameters are very interesting. And you have a lot of really top scientists, philosophers who think that that suggests... God either exists or something else crazy needs to explain it, like multiverse. Like there's trillions of universes out there and that's how many we would need in order to have lucked out with this one. Yeah, that's that's the thing. It's it, I've seen it compared to like hitting a bullseye the size of an atom with a gun that's on the other side of the known universe. Like that's how crazy precise of a shot it was that all the different things we needed for our universe to ultimately have life would all be present for us to eventually, you know, come about. It's yeah. it's so ridiculously fine-tuned for the presence of life that really the two options are multiverse, that there's an infinite number of universes out there with all these different parameters that eventually one's going to have all these things, right? And we, of course, just happen to be in that one. Or the other one is, of course, design, that God designed it because he wanted life to ultimately come about. What I find really fascinating is when you ask atheists what they think the most powerful argument for the existence of god is guess which one they typically say this one this is the one that gives so many of them pause i see this over and over and time and time again because it has such that scientific rigor to it and it's nearly awe-inspiring like seeing yeah. this well and because this is based on facts that scientists christians and atheists all agree on everyone agrees that the universe in those cosmological basic building blocks looks very designed. Like Christians aren't the only ones claiming this. Everyone agrees it's highly designed. They just disagree on how to interpret that design. And so an atheist can totally agree that the parameters of gravity are ridiculously perfect. Yeah. So this is why to me, this is S tier as far as convincing this. It's above A. S, A, B, C, D, it's S. It's at the top. It's the one that I think causes most people to rethink their position. Because normally, if you're someone who doubts the existence of God, it's going to be because some science thing, one way or the other. And this is a very scientifically robust argument. If you want to look into this a guy named Luke Barnes, another philosopher named Robin Collins, they really talk about these at great length. So check out their works. But S tier for me, S tier, it's got to be it's it's the most convincing. I probably should have looked up what the S stands for. But in my mind, Seth, it stands for super. And that brings me joy to imagine that I would probably agree. I'd agree. I would agree. I would Richard gear it. You have Richard um, gear. Yes. I would. I would agree. I think it's S tier for persuasiveness, and I think it's close to S tier for its validity. I put it at A tier for validity. 
I don't know if we can ever truly rule out multiverse. I think there's really good responses to it. The idea that it's multiverse, but you never know. For me, David Hume's critique of analogy and the teleological argument was very powerful. But I see that as a critique of all forms of argument for the existence of God, not just design. And so maybe I'll leave that out. Yeah, and especially because Hume at the end of that still thinks there's probably still a God. So even he didn't think his own argument was that convincing. Now, like, we're getting into weeds. Are we going to go S tier or A tier? What do you want? Don't get into weeds, children. No weed. No weed. Um, I, I, I'd say A tier. I think you're right. It's... Ah, I know. I'm... Okay, well, are we going to have an S tier then? Let's let's be nice and give it a, an S tier. Well, why don't we do it in between? It's it's an A S. It's an ass tier. As I said, as I didn't say the other <laughs> thing. I said as I I very clearly said as. If you back it up and replay the tape, if you back it up to as I said as, not the other thing. <laughs> I think I think we get S tier. S tier. Well, come on. Okay. Give me this one. Just, okay. S tier. All right. Let's move on. All, All right. right. Well, I think the next argument, moving beyond teleology and design, is the moral argument. And basically, the moral argument says that morality, if it's just a construct of humanity, if it's just something we invented, is subjective. One culture is pro-slavery, one culture is against slavery, and so what is right and wrong isn't an objective fact about the universe, It's just subjective to particular people, places, times, and cultures, and there's no fact of the matter about moral questions. One culture says love, another culture says something else, and it's just all subjective. But if there is a God who is above culture and time and space, then there can be an objective reference point for morality that isn't a social construct, but is grounded in the unchanging eternal nature of God. So the idea here is not that you need God or religion to be a good person, but the very fact that there are things like moral law, so we can make this judgment that when people disagree about what right and wrong are, there is a correct answer out there. There's got to be something that makes that true. What makes it the case that we live in a universe with moral laws rather than one where there aren't any, that anything goes and that all our moral intuitions and thoughts and feelings are just illusions? Yeah. And if so, if you believe that slavery is objectively wrong, that racism is wrong, and we ought to fight it and do something against it, and it's an obligation that you are a bad person if you don't oppose these sorts of evils in the world, then in some way you're committed to that premise that there are objective moral values. So where did they come from? Why aren't we just like fish? You know, no one cares, so to speak, whenever microbes die away. There's not a rightness or wrongness. Why are humans different? We're also just a collection of molecules. What makes us different? Let's tease this one out a bit by playing devil's advocate. But Seth, we don't need the Bible to tell us what's right and wrong. People knew that murder was wrong before the Bible told them so. Yeah, but the question isn't about where we come to know these moral facts. If everything that exists is just a bunch of molecules in motion, Where do these moral laws come from? So the question isn't where we come to know them. The question is, what are these moral laws? And how did they come to impose themselves on us and demand of us certain actions? Okay, but if God has to invent moral laws, Seth, then isn't God just inventing them in the same way that humans and human cultures and times are inventing them? Wouldn't that make them just as invented and subjective as our moralities? Yeah, this is a question that goes all the way back to Plato because he asked this. Are these moral laws good because the gods will them, or do the the gods will them because they are morally good? Of course, he used the gods, right, because he's talking in ancient Greece. But the same question applies to Christians. Does God will that murder is wrong because it is evil, or is it evil because God willed it? In the first case, then God is just responding to moral laws that are outside of him, so God can't be the source of these moral laws. But in the second case, it just seems totally arbitrary. If God willed one, he could have willed the other. God could have made it to where love is evil and murder and hatred are okay. And so the solution is, is that God has a nature. God has an aspect of his being, who he is, which is loving, kind, generous, merciful, just, etc., etc., etc. And that is the foundation for moral laws, the nature of God. God didn't choose his own nature. He just simply is this way. So God didn't choose to say, hey, uh, I've decided today that y'all should love each other. I've decided that's good. Rather, 
God is love itself, eternally, absolutely, unchangeably, forever and for always. And yeah. so love is the eternal foundation of existence itself. God is love, and love is unchangeably, always and forever, the way that we should and ought to be, regardless of what culture and time and different individuals happen to think about it. Love is unchangeably, eternally, timelessly, God and good. Yeah, so that's essentially the argument that if you believe in a purely naturalistic world where everything is just matter in motion, atoms in motion, where are these moral laws? Where do they come from? It just seems ridiculous to think that we as human beings have some, some sort of immaterial laws that impose themselves on us and us alone. Well, I think I've always found, this is a hard concept to understand, I've always found it helpful to tell different stories of the foundations of morality. I think in the religious story, God is love. God is goodness, eternally, unchangeably so. Love and goodness exist before the universe itself. Then God creates the universe. God brings about the universe, eventually brings about species and intelligent creatures such as ourselves, and implants within us these pre-existent eternal morals and goods. So we have these written on our hearts, and we know them. The alternative atheistic story is that before the universe existed, there was no love, there was no right or wrong or morality, there was just nothing. Or perhaps there was another natural universe, but morality didn't exist. An uncaring, unfeeling universe. Yeah, hard, cold, amoral. Think of outer space and the emptiness of that dark, meaningless abyss. Something like that. And there's no love or eternal value or anything like that. And then slowly the universe begins and then eventually stars form the elements and you get planets and then you get evolution and you get humans. And in the midst of that evolutionary process, you might have a ancestral predecessor of humans, some sort of monkey-like ape creature who's not exactly our ancestor, but a common... Anyways, if you played nice with the other creatures, the other apes, the other monkeys or whatever, then you would naturally tend to survive and reproduce because the more you work together in teams, the more you're likely to survive, whereas the loner is going to die off because they don't have other people to back them up. And so social values and being nice to each other slowly get programmed into the DNA of the species, and then eventually this gets passed on until you get our evolutionary thing. But if the evolutionary process had been different, we could have totally ended up differently. You know, there's that wasp that Darwin talks about that has evolved to plant itself inside of another creature, and then its babies eat the creature from the inside out. And so if we'd evolved that way, then eating each other out from the inside would have been the evolutionary moral way to be go about things because we would have evolved to think that and so if this is the origins of morality then it's by definition subjective and created and it's just socially... a byproduct of evolution it's it's an illusion that helped us to survive in the past but it's nothing more than that the idea that we should be fair and not enslave people is just because our monkey ancestors because they were cooperative survives better but it's not like it's appealing to some real principle law out there that objectively it's wrong. It's just a product of how our brain works. Yeah. And this is this is where we get to cry Hitler. And, and it almost be valid for once. The part of the Nazi idea was to take control of evolution and bring about the master race, removing those who didn't fit into their definition of a perfect humanity, removing the sick, the disabled and homosexuals, Jews, and everyone that didn't fit into their vision of ideal humanity. And had they succeeded and taken over evolution and killed off everybody who disagreed with them to the point that the species no longer had any of this, then it would be hard to say what they did was wrong because humanity would have evolved to agree with everything they did. Okay, so we've described this in quite a bit of detail. So now let's get to the nitty gritty. This argument has kind of fallen on hard times in the philosophy of religion. Not a lot of people still defend this. They think there are atheistic alternatives, blah, blah, blah. So that makes this one a little bit more peculiar. I am unconvinced because one of the arguments an atheist might say is, well, why can't we just say that certain moral values like justice, mercy, and those sorts of things just exist abstractly? This is sometimes called platonic moral realism or something like that, which is just a total disjustice to what Plato actually meant. I just don't think that a lot of philosophers even recognize what Platonism really is. 
but to me, this this is not a superior view to theism because you have to believe that somewhere outside of time and space is a principle that only applies to us and somehow causally applies to us, imposes itself on us, that we have accidentally evolved into understanding this principle called justice. It doesn't impact the universe. It's not impersonal like the law of gravity. Like if you drop a stone from a plane, it'll fall to the ground. And if you drop a human from a plane, they'll fall to the ground as well. Because the law of gravity acts impersonally upon all things. But the moral law acts only on persons, not the universe as a whole. It's personal. Yeah, there's, so there's multiple problems in, with that. One, why is this a principle only applying to us? I think there are some answers, like you got to be rational and grasp it. Two, why in the world did we evolve to actually understand these principles that exist outside of time and space, like justice, mercy, love, that just exist often in some ethereal realm? How did we evolve to actually grasp these, even though they're like completely separate from our existence? It seems just completely inexplicable to think that somehow evolution just happened to, by chance, evolve in a way to where I can magically understand these principles. And so in order to take this sort of naturalistic view of morality, you end up having to say that there is a source of morality that is eternal outside of time and space in an abstract way is personal such that individuals interact with it, but not all of creation, like it's not acting on rocks, you end up saying a lot of the things that theists already say. And so how far different is this from God? Yeah, and what's really interesting and fascinating to me is how in the world are they envisioning the idea that justice exists? What does that mean? It just does. Like before, you know, let's just say like before there was any human being on the planet, or any moral agents at all, or any life forms, that justice existed. I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means for justice or mercy or love to exist. I know what it means for people to be just. I know what it means for a person to be loving and kind and generous. But I don't know what it means for justice just to be there. How is that a superior alternative to theism, which grounds these ideas and well, justice exists because God is just. It's it's just a description of who God is. Yeah, because ideas like justice only exist in minds. And so it doesn't make sense for justice to exist out there on its own somewhere abstractly in the universe. It makes more sense in the Augustinian tradition to say these are thoughts in the mind of God, eternal thoughts grounded in the eternal mind. And so they're not just abstractly existing out there somewhere. They're thoughts, eternally thought in the mind of God. Well, so to speak, they're just descriptions of God's nature, so to speak. Yeah. This just is who God is. God is love in the sense that he is a tripersonal being that exists lovingly with one another. And that love is just a description we use to describe the inter-Trinitarian relationship. I can make sense of that. That makes sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me to say, before the universe was, love existed. What? There's no concept I can attach to that. Yeah. And I mean, you could say that, but the more you start to flesh that out, the more you realize it already sounds like theism. Yeah, because exactly. it's, there's an eternal love that exists before the universe, which interacts with individual persons on a personal level, but not the whole universe as a whole. Yeah. That is transcendent, that can be felt, even though it's invisible, you can't see it. I mean, these are, you're basically describing God. So you don't have to call it God but you're giving it all the same attributes. So I've seen some other of these apologetic tier lists and they normally put the moral argument on like a D tier and they never have good reasons for it, including theists. I've seen them put this argument pretty low. They've kind of given up on this argument. And I think that's it's it's hogwash. As far as it goes, I, I, I put this argument convincing wise, I put it A tier because when people really begin to reflect on this and because everyone seems to have something that they consider really deeply, strongly, morally wrong, abhorrent. It just seems pretty obvious that there are absolute right. There is an absolute right and wrong out there and that we're beholden to it. I, I would put it higher, but I do know people who just bite the bullet and say, yeah, this is all just an illusion. I think you're right. Uh, I think this is very persuasive if people sit with it for a long time. Yeah. I think this one has a really slow burn where someone hears it the first time, thinks that's stupid. Here's it a second time, thinks that's stupid. A year or two later thinks, oh, that's interesting, but I'm not persuaded. Three years later is like, oh, that's a problem. Like, oh, God, if God is dead, Nietzsche was right. Like, 
Anything's permitted. Everything's permitted. Well, that's Dostoevsky, five, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, Dostoevsky. And then five years after that is like, well, maybe this means God exists. I don't think it's the elevator pitch. It doesn't work quickly in an elevator pitch. This is a, I need to flesh this out over many conversations, over many years persuasive. But I think once you do that, I think it's the most persuasive. Yeah. Personally. Oh, so you put it S tier then. I, I maybe A tier because persuasive is very subjective to how convinced people are. But long term, I think it's very persuasive. I put it A tier. I as far as like philosophical arguments, because there's just not a lot of literature out there. There's not been major defenses of it. I mean, there's been some, but it's it's kind of it's kind of in a dry period right now. I'm going to give it a C tier. OK, that's interesting. I think there's two ways to reject the moral argument. One that I, I think honorable and I can I can understand the other that I think is just false. The first way is to say that nihilism is just the case. Like there are no right and wrong moral values. These are illusions. And yeah, they don't have any higher meaning. They aren't grounded in an eternal, unchanging, transcendent source. They're just social constructs and evolutionary byproducts. And I don't agree with that, but I can respect that. Sure. That's an honest open position that's willing to bite the bullet and admit, okay, God's dead. That means something and it does suck, but I'm going to bite that bullet and I'm going to admit that it sucks and just deal with it. The other alternative is to pretend that God's death doesn't mean anything and we can still go on believing that right and wrong have the same meaning they used to have in a religious world. And we can almost abstract those from their original religious context. And that's, I think that's sort of secular humanism. That's, we got rid of God, but we're going to pretend as if that didn't change everything. And I have a lot of trouble respecting that because to me, that is just living an illusion and that's being dishonest personally. That's where I'm at. So where are you grading this? You already said A tier for so, convincing this. So where are I you grading this, this logically? At, I would put this at A tier. Really? Um, here, well, I'm building to it. A lot of people would take the nihilistic route to just say, that's why I'm not convinced because yes, morality points to God, but maybe I can just reject that there's an objective morality. I think my issue with that is that people assume that morality isn't part of their lived experience and that science can sort of do without that. But if you're going to reject your very basic experience of right and wrong, because it is very basic, I would argue it's properly basic. I would argue that for most of us, our experience of right and wrong and the universe is meaningful is as epistemically convincing as our experience that the physical world is real. I would put those on par. Sure. My experience of the moral universe as having meaning is, is more profound, more convincing than my convincedness that this table is here. And so I don't care if science has found a way to try to dismiss the existence of the moral universe because science is only grounded and justified on the same basic parameters as the moral experiences itself. Like, I would say, therefore, I think the moral argument is very valid and doesn't need to appeal to the sciences to justify it. I, I, so we might have a, a genuine point of disagreement because I would put it B tier overall. Overall, it's B tier for me, but it sounds like overall it's A tier for you. It's, it's a tier for me. For me, this is, is really the heart of it. I wake up in the morning and I'm like, I either exist in a nihilistic universe or exist in a meaningful universe where God is in it. And the nihilistic one is consistent and coherent, but it's just not indicative of my actual experience okay. of the world. So I'm not going to reject so that. We, so we have an S tier. We have a B tier. I will, I will concede and put this one in A tier. All that right. way we have a nice symmetry. Perfectly balanced as all things should be. You, you're annoyed with me for continuing to blabber on about this. You're like, just rank it, Jonathan, and Rank move on. it. We've got so many to go through. Okay, next one. We only have one more. We got more than that. Okay. So we have the ontological argument. That's what I want to talk about. All right, you explain what that is. So the ontological argument is called an a priori argument because whereas the other things, the other arguments that we've talked about, they always appeal to something out there in the world, whether it's the fine-tuning of the universe, whether it's the beginning of the universe, whether it's our grasp of moral laws, those are things that point to something in the world. Whereas the ontological argument, it works more like a mathematical proof or a logical proof. Basically, the idea is that 
God is the greatest conceivable being or a maximally great being. In some way, God is the best thing you could ever conceive of, the best thing that could ever be. Whether you believe God exists or not, that's just the concept of what we mean by God. Well, there are different versions of this, but the general intuition points in the direction of saying, well, if God is the greatest possible being, it's better to exist in the world in reality than rather to exist merely possibly or merely conceptually or might possibly exist. To exist really is greater than to exist purely within the mind or purely possibly. There's different versions so, again. A, a king that actually exists in the world and can rule and dominate is greater than a king that just exists in a story tale. Right. So if you think God is, if you define God as the greatest possible being, the greatest conceivable being, however you want to define God, maximally great, and you say, well, then he, but he doesn't exist, then you're saying God is, I'm defining God as a maximally great being, but lacking a property that would make him greater, namely existence. So you've actually created a contradiction. You can't say at the same time, God, I'm defining God as the greatest possible being, and God does not exist, because existence makes you greater than it would have otherwise been. And since, as we know, contradictions can't happen, unless you're Jonathan, go read his book, Monotheism. I don't say they happen. I just say that we can't. Okay, whatever. Yeah, whatever. If, if you agree that contradictions are impossible, then you have to say that God exists. Now, how convinced are you of that? <laughs> well, I think most people are thinking, okay, they it might feels have like not we got, You got tricked. Yeah, it feels like it's a, it's a word game. Like, okay, you can't prove that God exists just from his definition, just from talking and using words. Why not? You have to, yeah. And why not? Well, I, I would say you, you actually, I think you might be able to. And the reason I would say you might be able to is how do you know that two plus two doesn't equal five? Do you have to go and check wherever there are two twigs next to two twigs that there's not five twigs? Do you have to actually go out and investigate and get your hands dirty and use your five senses to confirm that two and two twigs don't equal five? No, because it's not an empirical scientific question that needs to be explored. Rather, you just know that by definition, two and two equals four. It's an internal truth that's inherent to the structure of thought itself. And likewise, you could argue that if by definition God exists, by the very definition of what God is as the greatest possible being, then we don't have to go out there and explore and look at evidence and see if God is actually real in the physical world. We can just know by definition, by the nature of reason and logic itself, that God must exist. In the same way we can know that contradictions don't occur and two plus two doesn't equal five. This is not a very useful argument. I have known one person, and I'm shocked I know one, one person ever who's come to believe in God because of the ontological argument. And the dude was just like a walking computer. The ontological argument, it's a thousand years old. Every major Western philosopher, it seems like, has taken this seriously over the past 1,000 years. So it, it's, it's got a nice philosophical tradition. You can't just throw it to the side. But it's how much... persuasive. It, how many, yeah, how, this is not your elevator pitch. What's crazy is I know someone who was, this was their elevator pitch. They were in line at the grocery store one time. They had about 30 seconds with the grocer bagging their bags. And the grocer was talking to them about their job, found out they were a minister. And why do they believe in God? And they went with the ontological argument uh. every single time. And it never worked because nobody even understands basic logic or those types of things. So you, how can you then try to argue from that basic logic to God? Like, it might nobody... do, do more harm than good. If you're like, oh, this guy's trying to trick me. This is all he's got. Yeah, these are word games. You're playing in riddles. This isn't, this isn't indicative of reality. Yeah, and the problem is it's not just a riddle. It really is got a robust tradition. But persuasiveness-wise, this is D tier. No, don't yeah. use this one. Yeah, Except I would say this is, this, is, this is a D tier. Yeah. I would agree. This is not persuasive. But in terms of like its philosophical rigor and validity, B, I, I think that's right. It's a B. It's it's not a. It hasn't been enough to convince all of the philosophical tradition. But as you said, a lot of the biggest names of philosophy have taken it seriously, and whole systems have been devised either on its basis or to avoid it. 
because the whole argument kind of lives or falls on whether reason and your internal definitions and categories work. And if you throw out your internal reason, that negates our ability to do most rational things. Like well, it's it's a hard thing to do. Well, and even then, like the philosophers, like the major philosophers who have rejected it, like Kant, I honestly just think their objections don't work. So yeah. I'll be completely honest. I hate the ontological argument, but I don't know where it goes wrong. I'm like a lot of people who have said the ontological argument, there must be something wrong with it. And I think there has to be as well. I just couldn't tell you where it's at. The two things that I don't agree with, but the two major objections that puts it down to B tier for me, one is, is you can always just reject that there are such things as great making properties. There, the concept of a, a, a maximally great being, it might just be a purely subjective, like I, I think these properties are great, but there's nothing out in the world that makes those objectively greater than other things. Well, let's play this out for our audience. Why can't there be a maximally great Jonathan? A Jonathan who is far greater than I am and must exist because that Jonathan would be greater if he existed than if he didn't. How big is that Jonathan? How tall is he? He is, the he. oh, I guess he's six foot five. That's the perfect height. See, I think six foot six <laughs> is the perfect height. You see what I'm saying? So there is no objective We might not height. know what the perfect height is, Seth, but perhaps there is. Well, why is it different for God though? Well, maybe there is one out there, but my point is, is that maybe there isn't either. And it's perfectly plausible to say there is no such thing as a perfect height. And you might say, okay, well, that's an easy one. But things like power and wisdom and these things there, they, they seem to be more objective. We can objectively say that it's better to have power and wisdom than it is to not have those things. But again, someone could just say, well, again, that's like saying the perfect height is six foot four to say that wisdom is better than not having wisdom. That intuition that we're working with just doesn't work. So it's almost like the ontological argument presupposes the moral argument that things like justice, love, goodness are objective things that could be greater or lesser. Well, maybe you might just say, well, maybe moral things aren't, but power and knowledge are. So you can leave moral categories out so that it can kind of function independently. Yeah. Okay. I think the, another way you can kind of get around it is just to say that there is no such thing as a concept of a maximally great being that somehow the properties contradict each other. So for instance, can God create a, a boulder so big that he can't lift? That we might mm. think we have a concept of what a all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing being could do, but when we start to actually tear it apart, it creates contradictions. Like, can he create a boulder so big that he can't lift? So that it's actually God can't possibly exist. This is interesting. This reminds me of Descartes, Rene Descartes, the famous philosopher, I think therefore I am, who tried to do his own version of the ontological argument where he said that we have this idea in our, in our head of an infinite entity and no finite thing would ever be equal to the idea in your mind. So it can't have been caused by a finite thing. It must have been caused by an infinite one. But the problem is, does Descartes actually have an idea in his mind of an infinite being who is infinite? Yeah. Or is, is what he's thinking of is infinite, just a collection of finite thoughts that he's pieced together in a way that make it seem like he's conceived of an infinite when he actually hasn't. So yeah, there might be some contradiction that's kind of hidden from view. So I think a good example might be, I can think of a universe where there's an unstoppable force and an immovable object. And just on face value, I might think about it and think, yeah, I can see a universe where both of those things exist. But what happens when they come in contact with one another? You create a contradiction. And so actually, you'd probably say that once you think about it and really recognize that that might create a contradiction, that maybe that universe isn't as possible as you originally thought. Maybe that's actually an impossible universe because you can't have those two things existing side by side. Yeah. So and maybe God is the same way. Maybe being all powerful and being all knowing and being all good create a contradiction. Another easy one is how can God be all powerful if he's all good? That means he can't do evil actions. So to, to simplify this for the audience, the ontological argument claims that we can think of God and conceptually grasp what God is. And once we do that, we can grasp that he's true by definition, because part of what he is is that he exists. And what Seth's basically saying, if I'm right, is that you actually can't conceive of God at all in this sense. You don't have a conception of God as a coherent being who's all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing, and maximally great. You think you have an idea of that, but it's actually a collage of random, finite things that you've mashed together in your head 
that never actually rises to the concept of yeah. of this being that you think you have. You think you are thinking it, but you're not thinking it. You're thinking a lesser. It's like when people think they've thought of a square triangle. You put a square over a triangle. There, I've, I've thought of it. It's a square triangle. No, that's not a square that's also a triangle. That's not an object that has three sides, but also four sides. It's just a square you've placed over a triangle. You haven't actually thought of the contradictory thing itself. You've just put two things next to each other and tricked yourself into thinking you've thought of a contradiction. And once you can kind of bring out those latent contradictions, like a unstoppable force and an immovable object, then all of a sudden you recognize, oh, that actually isn't a cohere. I'm not really thinking of God to begin with. So the first premise that you can conceive of a being that which nothing greater can be conceived or that God possibly exists, depending on which version, the first premise just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So I give it a B tier. There's responses yeah. to this. There's responses to this. One's called the modal perfection argument. It gets really into, I mean, there's a lot of literature on this, none of which is useful because it's D tier. So overall, yeah. I give it a C tier. I think I'd agree with that. C tier? Okay. C tier. I, I think if I was convinced we had a proper concept of God in our heads, I would be willing to say that that concept might somehow be self-proving by definition, but I'm not convinced we actually conceptually understand what God is in, in the way that we need to. I don't think our finite brains are equipped to fully grasp that. So C tier. So that's the worst one. All right. Now for a wild card, let's throw in the problem of evil, an argument against God's existence. And the problem of evil, everyone probably knows it as how can God and evil coexist? Exhibit A, Seth. Exactly. And yet God <laughs> deems me worthy of existence. Essentially, it's just the idea that if God is all powerful and all good and all knowing, he both knows, is willing, and is capable of eliminating evil. Yet evil still exists. Therefore, one of those premises must be wrong. Namely, probably most likely is that God does not exist. Yeah. Well, how seriously do you take this, Seth? Obviously, I think this is, I think most people would agree that this is probably the biggest problem for belief in God, mostly because of the emotional weight of it, looking at your own life and wondering where God was and why God didn't do anything, but also historically with major incidences as well, Holocaust being sort of textbook example, but I mean, even today, just look at the news and it's just the question of where is God? The emotional weight is really, really powerful. In its more philosophical versions, there's many different versions of this. Some are just try to just outright prove that God and evil can't coexist. Those are sometimes called the logical problem of evil. And others just try to show that, well, it, we can't just prove that God does not exist because of evil, but we can make it less likely. It seems to be evidence yeah. against God's existence. Those are just called evidential problems. You can't prove that evil disproves the existence of God because it's always logically possible that God has some reason for doing all of this and allowing all this evil. And we just don't understand what that reason is yet. So the, the presence of evil doesn't contradict or negate the possibility that God has some higher plan. It just makes it less likely. Yeah. So it's kind of like in a courtroom, you never absolutely 100% prove that Sally stole Johnny's car. You just make it the case that the evidence so strongly points in that direction that it seems like, yeah, it's pretty obvious that she did. It can never be like 100%. Because you can always say, well, maybe this evidence was fake. This evidence was fake. Maybe aliens planted it in. You can always come up with some absurd hypothesis that, you know, say it's wrong. But the point is, is where does the evidence point? And so those are the problems of evil, the evidence ones, because their claim is a little bit, so to speak, weaker. It's not trying to make an absolute proof. Those are the ones that are the most difficult to deal with for theists, for Christians, for people who believe in God. So again, a lot of versions are out there. Immediately, I'm going to say when it comes to how convincing this is, A tier. Yeah, I think A tier as well. I would give it an S tier, but for the fact that evil quite often drives people to believe in God as well. Yeah. There's this sense that I need God in the midst of all of this suffering to get me through. A lot of people don't even sense the presence of God when things are going fine. It's only when they're falling apart that they feel held up. Yeah. So in one sense, problem of evil might evoke atheism. And other times, it also seems that God is the only solution to people who enter into these states of just deep emotional distress and thinking, my only hope is God in this moment. So 
I give it an A tier because yes, it is extremely emotionally powerful, but not ultimately. I think it's persuasive. What would you say for its logical validity? I'd probably say maybe a B minus. I'd give it a B. B. I give it a B. There's some versions that are really, really powerful. I don't think there's anything out there that just is overwhelmingly difficult. I actually think the hardest problem is not human evil at all. I don't think it's the Holocaust. When we come to just logic, not not emotional problems. I think the hardest problem just logically and philosophically is animals, Mm. especially if you believe in evolution, because you can always say, well, humans are evil. We live in a fallen world and we have free will and God wants to respect that. But what about animals? Animals aren't sinful, like the innocent bunny rabbit that has to suffer and die. And if you believe that happened over millions of years and simply saying, well, you know, because we sinned, we did that. Well, why is God punishing animals for human sin? That doesn't seem fair. Yeah. So I, that, that one is, I'm not saying there's not an answers to it. I am saying that that one's tough. That one's a lot tougher. Okay. So let's, let's start with human evil. Then let's go to animal and natural evil. So human evil, you brought up free will. Basically, God gives us freedom. We have the freedom to love and have that be a meaningful, morally meaningful choice. But with that freedom to love also has to come the freedom potentially to hate. And so we have a world where everyone is choosing between those two. And so, of course, you get lots of crazy, horrible, evil stuff going on. Yeah. What would a counter to that be? I mean, with the Holocaust, it doesn't seem like God has to allow us that much freedom, does he? I mean, the freedom to slaughter 6 million, 11 million if you count non-Jews. Yeah. And to do so in such gratuitous horrific fashion. I think I think a good counter to that is is how much evil should God allow? Because if you say, well it can't kill 6 million, what about 5? What about 4? What about 1? And maybe not killing, let's say God just can't allow killing. Well, what about injury? Well, how big of an injury? What about stubbing your toe? The amount of evil doesn't actually seem to be the problem. Because as soon as you say, well, why does God allow this amount of evil? Well, what amount should he allow? You really get into vague territory because whatever evil, got, the most amount of evil God allows, you can always say, why does he allow this much and not less? And then you could say, why, why is he allowed that much and not less than that? And keep going down until you're just saying, why does God allow evil at all? I think there's no intellectually non-arbitrary answer to that. There feels like there's an emotionally non-arbitrary answer to that, which is, you know, I would allow my kids to run around in the backyard and get a bloody knee and maybe even break a leg from falling from a tree, but I'm not going to let them at four years old cross the road to go get a chocolate bar from the store because they might get run over. I'm not going to let them go do a missions trip to a prison to minister to prisoners at a young age. Emotionally, there's a non-arbitrary limit. It might be hard to specify, but like, there's obviously an emotional difference between a stubbed toe and the Holocaust. Yeah, but then again, it, it comes if we're talking about the logical thing, which is, okay, so where should God have done it? You really get into, it's called skeptical theism, which is this idea that theists get to play the skeptic in this because it's like, well, okay, that's what we do for our children, but we're also not omniscient. We're not running the entire cosmos where it's not just God isn't just concerned about me. He is concerned about me, loves me deeply, deeper than I love myself. But he's also created an entire universe with a bunch of interacting persons. Whereas in your case, it's just your two kids that you're in charge of. And so, yeah, you're going to will the highest good just in their case. But for me, my highest good might be, might end up in a lot of evil for other people. And so we just don't, we're not in God's position to know what, the best good for the universe at large is. And maybe that involves all these other things. I'm not saying it does. Again. But maybe. That, this but, is where the probability comes in. Yeah, it's just it's just one of those things. It's like, we just don't know because we're not in that position. It'd be like asking your kids, you know, you might cause suffering for them if you like pull their hand away really roughly from a fire and it might, might hurt them a lot. And they, they would have no ability to understand why you did that. Even, yeah. but, but it's because you're in a different, higher cognitive position than them, yeah. you're smarter than them, that you know that, and you know they're not going to be able to understand it. And I think that's a totally valid move to make, to appeal to mystery. I think every worldview at some point reduces to mystery. I think the thing is, and this is where the probability stuff comes in, the more that you reduce to mystery, the more you have to admit that the worldview starts to weaken itself. Kind of. I, I, th- I think there's a sense in which every worldview appeals to mystery. The best worldview is probably the one that appeals to it least 
or least often. Okay, hear me out here. Okay, so I think there are two kinds of unknowns. The one is we don't know have an answer for this, but we understand why we don't have an answer. It's just a cognitive investigation limitation on our part. So we don't have any evidence for aliens in the Andromeda galaxy. But that's fine. That doesn't mean there isn't any out there. Nobody thinks that's evidence against it. We just don't have the technology to go out and look for aliens in the Andromeda galaxy. It's too far away. But there's another sort of unknown, which is, yeah, we do have the capacity to know, but we just don't have an answer. And I think that is what counts against a worldview. We would expect on Christianity, on theism, to not have these sorts of answers. And so this is just kind of a prediction of theism, is that, yeah, there's going to be things that we can't know. That's just something we expect, and it doesn't harm our hypothesis whenever we recognize that and point that out. I mean, the difference between me and God is infinitely greater than the difference between my brain and the mind of a flea. Yeah, so it's sort of like if my dad sneaks out one night and I ask, where are you going? And he says a bunch of stuff and I don't understand it because I'm four. It's like, it makes sense that I don't understand it. I never know where my dad's going when I'm four. He said some words, sounded like maybe he was going to a work thing. But if you're 20 and your dad's sneaking out at the middle of the night and doesn't give you a clear answer, that is suspicious because you should be able to get a good answer from him. Yeah, and so I, and I think we're more on the former example than the latter. So it makes sense yeah. why we do not understand all of this. We just don't have the expertise. To it do makes that. sense why we don't make sense. Yeah, why exactly. Sense? And so that's why I don't think it, it really weakens the worldview of theism that much. So pivoting away from human freedom and the ability to do sin and evil and do things like the Holocaust, natural evil, you're beginning to get into it with animals. And we could talk about disease, hurricanes, yeah. earthquakes. These types of things that have existed for millions of years, billions of years, before humans were here to freely choose whether to fall or not. What accounts for them? Even if you believe in a young earth, why does God subject penguins to death because of the sin of Adam and Eve? It's weird to think about. And sometimes it's a little awkward to talk about why God is like, you know what, penguins, you have to suffer too because of, you know, continents away, some other species did something. You know, that doesn't seem quite fair. So. I think this is a problem no matter what you believe about the origin of the world. Mm -hmm. And this is where I appeal to, I have an article on this, that I appeal to, I do still think we have to go with a free will defense. I do think that it's nearly freedom all the way down. I think that creatures are free. And I think that they have the capacity to follow different persuasions, whether God's persuasion on their heart or fallen angels, demonic forces on them. And I think that demonic forces are and have been acting in the world. And so when you put those two together, you sort of expand the free will defense out. I'm giving a very rough outline. I think it can make sense of all cases of evil, including natural evil. The whole creation is caught up in free will. Groaning and eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Why? It might be a free will that's only analogous to ours. But of course, our free will is probably only analogous to the angels or gods or whatever. Yeah. So why are we waiting for the sons of God to be revealed because the rest of creation, which is subjected to sort of this toil and turmoil that Paul's talking about in Romans 8, it's being subjected to this. God allows this to happen ultimately to bring about the redemption of all the world. So I think the final element is, is why does God just create a universe like this to begin with? Why didn't God just refrain from creating? Because surely a universe with just God is more perfect than a universe filled with millions of death by cancer, disease, war, blah, blah, blah. And the answer, I think, is, is that God is bringing something redemptive out of this. That as soon as you give uh, purpose to suffering, it ceases to be suffering to an extent. It's kind of like childbirth. Childbirth is one of the most painful experiences a human can undergo. Uh, my wife's about to experience that in less than a month. It's incredibly painful, but very rarely is that used as an example in the case for the problem of evil. Why? Because it's so jam-packed with meaning that... In some sense, we just it doesn't even come to mind as an instance of why do I suffer when I give birth to a child, at least not first. So as soon as you give meaning to suffering, as soon as you give meaning to it, it ceases to have that sort of edge that makes us think God can't, in a sense, live in a world with this sort of suffering. Well, congratulations. Who's the father? Oh, thanks. I've never heard that one before. You're so original. <laughs> no one has said that to me. Uh, so I think another element for here is that 
if you combine the moral argument with the problem of evil, you can very interestingly say, we can only admit that the Holocaust was evil and horrific and morally wrong if we admit that there is an objective, eternal, unchanging standard of the good. And so only if there is a God who is goodness and is love itself, can we then claim that something like the Holocaust has fallen short yeah. of that standard. And so horrific events, while they might make us question what God's doing, remind us that we live in a moral universe in which these evil things really are evil. The, the death of children in the Holocaust are not just meaningless parasites ceasing to exist in a hollow, dark universe where nothing matters and we're just atoms clashing together in a void. This really is objectively evil and objectively wrong because we live in a world where right and wrong have objective meanings. They're not just social constructs. They're not just evolutionary byproducts. Where, where are we grading this? So I said A tier and persuasiveness, but I, I also think that it's probably about, I don't know, B tier for philosophical sophistication. It, yeah, it's, it's okay, but it's not, it's not as if you can't overcome it. So I'd say, I'd say B tier. Yeah, upper B it's, tier. It's definitely more persuasive than it is philosophically definitive. So upper B tier. So this will be our first repeat. We have two B tiers, cosmological and problem of evil. Okay. There you have it. There you have four arguments for God's existence and one against, graded objectively and completely accurately by Jonathan and Seth. We've we've solved it. We've figured everything out. We've solved well, It's interesting. You only listed one argument against the existence of God. Are there that many arguments against the existence of God? Not as many as there are four. Not it nearly. It feels like most of them tend to be reoccurrences of the problem of evil. I mean, there's incoherency arguments that kind of yeah. we got into with ontological. Like maybe the concept of God is just incoherent. So yeah. there's a few that are scattered about, but the big one really is the problem of evil. Yeah, it does definitely feel like there's more arguments for the existence of God than against. That doesn't mean, therefore, God exists. But, but does the evidence point that way? Thanks again for listening to the Spiritually Incorrect Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider leaving us a five-star review and hitting that subscribe button. Also, think about joining our Patreon page, we just released another episode on the existence of God, where we debate playing both sides of the debate as an atheist and as a Christian, and talk about the strong points and weak points of both sides. If you really enjoy the topic of apologetics, that's one you won't want to miss. For five bucks a month, it's yours, plus hours of additional content. Go check it out at spirituallyincorrectpodcast.com. Special thanks to Jordan Birch, whose song Starry Night provides the intro and outro for this podcast. You can hear more of his music on YouTube or Spotify.